Our second reading is from the Gospel of Mark. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The word of the Lord. Now, thank you for inviting me here. It's a great privilege to be able to give uh, Johnny and his family a rest. I know after uh, 30 plus years of ministry, it's, uh, it's sometimes really hard to get away. So it's a very redeeming thing for me to be able to, to do this. And thanks for the wonderful worship here, the worship band, and especially our Chilean uh, brothers and sisters, muchas gracias. Uh, it was a real blessing, really. This morning, I want to talk about uh, what it means to keep a Sabbath. At first, when you hear the gospel uh, and Jesus' words about the Sabbath being created for man, not man for the Sabbath, it appears that he's somehow breaking one of the commandments himself. Uh, one thing to know is that there were some 613 sub-commandments that had been added to the Ten Commandments by this time of Jesus. Uh, the priests had elaborated on the basic commandments, and so on the Sabbath there was all these kind of minute other rules that you had to keep. Uh, and the definition of work uh, was just as varied. For one thing, uh, in the case of Jesus and his disciples, to, to walk through a grain, uh, a field of grain, and rub off the, the seeds and eat them, that was considered work. If you were walking through a, a field and the grass or the grain was below your knee, you were okay. If it was above your knee, you were working, you were breaking the Sabbath. So you can see how over 613 rules, I mean, who could remember them all? And it got to the point of absurdity. There was a group of Pharisees called the battered and blind Pharisees. And they tried to keep the moral law of God to the extreme. When they would walk through the town or the villages or the marketplace, if they glanced up and saw a beautiful woman, they would close their eyes and rush along. And they would like walk into fire hydrants and fence posts and trees like Pokemon hunters and, you know, <laughs> ponds and stuff like that, so they, they kind of paraded around with all these black eyes that they had, and people would say they were, you know, holy. But Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This was a shock to them, because they heard it as an overturning of the legal requirement of the law. But Jesus was talking about it being a human blessing. He wasn't minimizing the commandment as much as he was maximizing it. He was emphasizing that it was more than a religious observance of what you don't do. It was more about God's plan for us as human beings. We only have seven days in a week. Uh, how many of you know time is finite? It's not stretchable, especially when you're under the gun to get your proposal in or in the fiscal year and all the things that we have to do. 
The Sabbath is a safeguard to keep us from working ourselves to exhaustion. So this morning, I want to cover this in three points. The first being God commands us to rest. The second one is we rebel against rest. And the third point is work comes from rest. In Exodus 20, verse 8, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And it goes on to say that in six days God made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested. And because he rested, he made that day holy. So God commands us to rest because we just won't do it on our own. God set aside a day and he blessed us, but sin being what it is, rebels against anything that God wants us to do. Sin entered the human race and made us resistant even to his blessings. So he commands rest. How many of you have little kids that have to take naps in the afternoon? Two of you do, anyway. Um, you know, they, they don't want to take a nap, right? But you want at least 45 minutes to an hour of free time so you can catch your breath, right? So you command them to take their nap. And you can tell them, well, you can jump up and down in your crib all you want, but you're staying in there, right? God commands us to take a rest. And I think it's instructive to read uh, the first lesson that was read here from Isaiah 30, 15. God is speaking through Isaiah to a rebellious nation. And he says this, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. Now when we think of strength, we think of doing stuff. We think of being physical. We think of being in command. We think of actuating things. But here God's saying strength is found in quietness. And it's found in trust. And before that, Isaiah points to the, the need to return to God first. To have a day devoted to resting in God is to return to him at least once a week, to be in his presence. I've led retreats uh, in the past where the theme was to catch the rhythm of the day, that the day has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And to have a rhythm between time alone and time together, a rhythm between resting and a rhythm between work and study. And you know what the most popular thing, especially among men, is in that retreat? It's the afternoon free time when they can take a nap. The guys are exhausted. This is a big thing for them. They've gotten permission to take a nap. Hard to do at home, isn't it, when there's so many things that have to be taken care of? If you keep a Sabbath day of rest, you'll be surprised how unimportant so much of the stuff you do really is. Nobody ever said on their deathbed that I know of, I wish I had spent more time at work. There's a story of business exec I heard years ago who had just come back from a, a really nice vacation with his family. And his exec assistant had arranged his over 300 emails and categories and priorities so that he could get back to work uh, and hit the ground running. Anybody identify with that? You know, you take a two-week vacation, you come back, and it's like, oh, no. She was shocked when he sat down at his computer. He clicked on select all, and then he hit delete. And she said, what are you doing? This is a disaster. 
And he leaned back in his chair and he said, no, it isn't. If it's important, they'll call me. God's commands of rest are there because we need it. We're not God. He's God. And one of the things that's underscored when we keep a Sabbath rest is that God is in charge. He's in charge all the time, but at least for one day, he can be in charge of things and we can rest in him. So God, first of all, commands rest. Second, we rebel against rest. In Isaiah 30, verse 15, he says, in repentance and, and rest is your salvation, and quietness is your trust, but you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses, therefore you will flee. And God goes on to describe the consequences of that. Just those few words, but you said no, really comprises the mutiny that we have against God. That's what sin is. It's a mutiny against him. It's saying, I know what you're commanding. I know where you want to lead us, but I'm saying no. I'm not going to do it. God commands us to do something that goes against our self-worship, and we say no. The idea that we know better than God. I was brought up uh, with a saying, God helps those who... I thought it was in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. Living without a Sabbath is like saying, God helps those who help themselves, and I have to constantly help myself. God might have rested on the, on the seventh day. He might have made it holy, but I'm no better. I'm going to work. I'm going to keep on working. Do you ever feel that there's always something to do and it keeps you from doing something fun or something restful? Always that nagging thing. There's always something to do. Yeah, I'd love to just goof off but I can't because there's just this feeling. That's an indicator that it's time to rethink and change direction. Returning, in this sense, is repenting. Repenting simply means to change your mind and change your direction. If you're on your way to Baltimore and you start seeing signs that welcome you to Richmond, you can beat yourself up. You can say, oh, I feel so guilty. Oh, I feel so bad. But repentance means you're going to turn around. And that's what we need to do is to turn around and rethink the direction. Returning is to stop going your own way and to go back. And it takes work to do that. The great book, Moby Dick, written by Herman Melville, there's a, there's a scene where a preacher is preaching to the, uh, the whalers as they're getting ready to sail out to sea, uh, perhaps for years. And he said, if we would obey God we must disobey ourselves. We have to disobey ourselves. I was backpacking once up on the Appalachian Trail, and I came to a, a fork in the road, and on one side I just saw a bunch of boulders and rocks, and the other side I saw the path I'd been on. So I just kept going. I had my map. I knew what I was doing. And the path got narrower and narrower until it was just this little kind of like two-inch wide path. And I, I thought, you know what? It doesn't look like I'm going up the mountain. It looks like I'm going around the mountain. But I know what I'm doing. So I kept going for 20 more minutes until the path disappeared. And I'm looking at my map and I'm trying to figure out what's going on. 
I had to repent. It was humiliating. I was looking around to see if any other hikers were, were, were watching me. I had to walk back, back to the boulders. I climbed up on the boulders, and sure enough, there was that white blaze on the tree, Appalachian Trail. But I had to turn around and go back. I had to disobey myself in order to obey the right direction. I later found out from a ranger that was a deer trail I was on. So it was all their fault. It was deer. It takes humility to rest, especially in the 21st century. It takes humility to turn around no matter how foolish we might feel. No is usually one of the first indicators your child is turning to. Anybody familiar with that? Or your 18-month-old or your two-year-old starts saying no all the time? You're thinking, what's going on here? Uh, they're really getting into that rebellious spirit. Why do we say no to God? I'm glad that you asked that. We say no to God because we want to be our own saviors. We want to be in charge. We want to have the, the, the control over our own life. It's part of what we're born with, a heart condition that says no, a heart condition that wants us to be on the throne. We like God. We want him to be on our side. We just don't want him to tell us what to do. We want a God who's more like an app that we can pull out on our smartphone and get directions and kind of evaluate and see if it's going to work for us and make life work for us, but we want to continue to be our own saviors. We turn to him when all efforts fail. It's like dramas, you know, where the surgeon comes out of the OR to the, the anxious family, and they say, how, how is my loved one? And the surgeon says, well, we've done everything we could. All we can do now is, it's like, oh, no. Has it gotten that bad that we, we're going to pray? When the Bible tells us it's the first thing we should do for the one who is the Lord of our lives and the lover of our souls. When we say no to God's invitation to rest and have quiet confidence in him, he says, okay, fine. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee till you're left like a, a flagstaff on top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Do you ever feel like you're just one step ahead of the weed whacker of life? <laughs> that you're always in the rat race, even when you're home? That you're constantly fleeing something? That's the result of being your own savior. Fear, anxiety, loneliness, it's all there in verse 17. It's all there when we say no to God's command to rest. He says, I want you to rest and I want you to delight in me. We say no, and he says, okay, start running from your own shadow. And in the end, you get to the top of the mountain, but you're just an empty flagpole, and there's nothing there. The feeling that you're always on the run is a symptom about rebelling against God's uh, command to rest. It is exhausting to be your own savior. It's exhausting to try to be a good person. You and I are not good persons. We can't be good persons. It's only Jesus who's made us good people. 
And it's in that that we can have rest. So God commands us to rest. Second, we rebel against rest. And third, work comes from rest. In the first two chapters of the Old Testament book of Genesis, we see God creating Adam and Eve in his image and then giving them something. He gives them work to do. Eden was like a huge national park. And Adam and Eve had all kinds of things to do. He could name animals. He could cultivate the ground. But there was work to be done. And the thing that's noteworthy about this is that work was the production of something. Work meant producing and creating things, whether it was creating names for animals. You know, you, you hop around, you got a big tail, I think I'll call you a kangaroo, you know, whatever. They were producing something. They were not consumers. God has made us in his image to create not to consume, but to make things for the betterment of our community, things that are going to benefit our family and our loved ones and our friends. We honor God with rest. He honors our work then with creativity. We're happiest when we're creating something. Work is meant to be a self-giving that benefits others through what we make. And our best work comes out of honoring God first. Whether you're a carpenter or an accountant, project manager, or a mother at home, when we honor the Sabbath rest God commands, he brings out the best in our work. I had a friend who used to say, prayer is the work, the work is just the fruit. So that when we commit our lives to God in the keeping of a Sabbath, he actually honors our work. Try it and see if it doesn't change your work and the outcome of your work, if you keep a Sabbath day of rest. You've heard that marriage takes work. All relationships take work. It's hard, but it creates something. It creates something out of nothing. Sharing your life with someone is a vocation. It's a work. There was an article titled, Virtually Connected, Physically Alone written by a woman named Christina Fox. And she writes about a guy who's talking about all the virtual friends he has on social networks, like Facebook, but he has not a single face-to-face -face friend. Not a single real person that he actually meets with who actually knows him, except all these other people he spends hours and hours relating to in a virtual atmosphere. It's the same with work. Work that's productive, that invites people into your life face-to-face, -face, is work that God is going to honor. We're simply not designed to work seven days a week. It breaks the machinery of our physical bodies. We're not meant to work 24-7. We're not meant to come home and have our work chase us all around the house with emails and text messages. That's not what we see in God's creation. What makes us think that we can be better than God? That God would honor a seventh day as part of who he is from all eternity, a community within himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, who honor and love each other 
and have honored that one day of the week. What makes us think we're so different? God first commands us to rest. Secondly, he, we rebel against rest. And third, work comes from rest. So I want to say in closing that keeping a day of rest is ultimately about trust. Can you trust God for this one day? There will be a day when you and I will breathe our last breath and the world will go on without you. Your workplace will go on without you. Keeping a Sabbath day is honoring the fact not only that God commands it, but it is a, it is a sobering reality that we live finite lives and we should make the most of it in our relationships and what we create, what we do with our lives. If we can learn to trust him for one day, maybe we can then start to trust him for every day. Maybe that will change the quality of our relationships and the quality and the meaning of our work. Last thing. This is from Matthew 6, 32, verse 33. For the Gentiles run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so, Father, teach us to number our days, to rest in your care for us. Give us a vision of rest and the courage to pursue it so that we can be workers who show your presence in an anxious and troubled world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.